Pam Ochoa. I have a question for you today. And my question is this. We are called Craft and Draft. And if you had to pick who was which, would you be Craft or would you be Draft? Would I be Craft or Draft? How do you mentally, how would you define us if you had to? You, there's no option. You can't say we're both. None of that, okay? I'm putting it right now. Who's Craft, who's Draft, and why? Well, my my gut is... <laughs> I'm drafting your craft, but then I'm starting to think I might be changing over and you're doing all the writing and at school and I'm doing all the reading, starting to get a little nervous about this change we got going on. (laughs) In the past, I'd always be the draft. Everything I've always done has been centered around writing first. So draft for me, craft for you. Is that changing? I don't know. I think it's because right now we're really, I feel like we're really focusing on the reading due to the fact that you always tell me we don't care about (laughs) such things as writing scissors, no (laughs) tails. No, you, you do care because all your kids do is write. And then it's time for me to turn in my work. And I'm like, my kids haven't done any writing. I've been doing a lot of reading. So I don't know. I'm changing, but I would say, your craft on draft. It's interesting. It's an interesting take. I, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, we have this thing that I actually really like that we do in our district. It's called uh, Birdville Voices, but it's where we highlight, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the writers happening and. Uh, it, it's a fun way to take some pieces that have been written and put out there. But I think this is, this is what inspired, I think, at least your comment on this was <laughs> we were sitting there at the end of Friday and I was like, I'd send an email that morning saying, all right, it's time to submit again. And you were, you were a little, uh, uh what, what's the I, word? I was Reticent? a little bit despondent. <laughs> despondent. <laughs> Well, I went back and I looked at some of the writing. And I mean, it's not that my kids aren't writing. They are. But I mean, I used to just have these real power pieces that I would put in. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. But then you told me I could go ahead. But I'm just thinking, I don't know. I got to do some work on that writing. That's all I got to say. My kids need to have, I can't wait. We're going to, we're going to really double in on this poetry. I'm hoping it turns some of them around. So I was a little bit upset about some of the writing, but I may have to look at their CBAs. I probably got better writing on that. I didn't think about that. I could look at some of those. You know, I, uh, I actually want to, I want to double down on that poetry thing for a minute, but oh, let's go no. ahead and intro the go. podcast just because, okay. just, just because we're already here, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, this is Craft and Draft. That's Pet Watcher. I'm Jacob Chastain. We're two teachers down Hello. here in the state of Texas living the workshop life. We talked about reading our workshop on this podcast and everything in between. Today, we're going to try to dive into the topic of this, this concept of letting students read in our classroom and often letting them read without an assignment. Does, is that bad? Is it bad to let kids read in a reading class? That's our question today, and we're going to dive all throughout that. But before we get to that, I'm going to jump back to Ochoa talk about this poetry thing. But ladies and gentlemen, this is your first time, second time, 63rd time listening to this podcast. Thank you for showing up. We really do appreciate you guys. If you want your questions answered on the podcast, you can do that by submitting a question at craftedfworkshop.com. You can submit it to me on Twitter, Instagram, or 
or Facebook at the Craft and Draft Facebook page. Uh, we love answering your questions and everything else. Subscribe to the podcast if you are not already. If you haven't left a review or a star rating, do so. That really does help the show stay alive, vibrance, and find more listeners. But let's get to the conversation. We've had a podcast where we said we love teaching poetry. I'm pretty sure we've talked about poetry more than any other genre on this. And I'm curious as to, I know we're talking about reading today, but when it comes to, you made a statement that I want to, I think is a really Uh interesting one, which is, I can't wait for something. I'm now I'm paraphrasing you. People are hearing this. They're like, that isn't what she said. So I'm going to paraphrase very loosely. (laughs) You said something. always happens to me. (laughs) I know. I'm a, not you, I'm that's a, not what I said. I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase very quickly and say you said something along the lines of you know I'm waiting for poetry because we're gonna get some power stuff right we're gonna get it's gonna move some of my writers it's gonna get some of them going so what is it about poetry that you think is going to uh, shift whatever's happening? in your workshop right now? Why, why is poetry uh, a a good place to be aiming right now? Well, I I think poetry is, you know, when you can get kids to dig deep in there, it really comes from the heart. And I think from, from that, they start taking risks that they haven't taken before. And I think it's a genre that allows them to do risky things and they're not trying to be like another author or they're not trying to be like what they think the teacher wants. And I, I think I can typically move them uh, from that idea. I think that's really what the problem is with my writing is I think right now, uh, when I was reading over everything the other day, it just seemed like most of the kids were trying to please me, maybe from their past experiences. I don't really know. But they were. it was more like they were trying to put down what they thought I wanted them to put down versus what they really felt. And so I think I haven't moved my kids far enough. And I'm hoping that this poetry will uh, get to the, if you will, the heart of the matter, the heart of of what they believe, what they think, what they feel, and let them explore with words and different kinds of techniques. And let's see what they can really do. I think it'll pull creativity out of them. You know, and I, uh, we probably said this on that podcast, but I really do think that poetry does all of those things, you know, and Mm -hmm. I, it's so funny because I have, my students have been writing poetry since the first six weeks because I kind of, I encourage it very early on. I teach, Mm -hmm. um, a lot through poetry. Um, and it's because I have found, and I state this actually at the beginning of rightfully empowered. And again, for anyone listening to the podcast, I'm sorry. I keep talking about it. I'm in the final edits. It's about to be over. We're about to be past rightfully empowered and move on. But I keep referencing it just because it's the front of my mind, but at the in early parts of the book, I talk about actually the intro. I say the majority of the pieces in there, not all of them, but the majority of them are pieces of poetry because I have found none of the pieces in there are something I assigned. They're things that students wrote. They the only thing I that I assigned, quote unquote, was you have to be writing, right? And so they a lot of them chose to publish poetry a lot because it becomes something that students find empowering when it's not so 
limiting when they realize that you can express a story, you can express a feeling, you can express a thought, all of these things. And I think that is the the power of poetry. I mean, you think about like one of my favorite poets, like Emily Dickinson, for instance, she wrote hundreds of poems and some of them are huge ideas. Some of them are snarky, like, you know, like shouts to people that annoyed her or whatever. Some of them are deeply philosophical and depressed. And I, I think she's the, all just the, the breadth of her work is why I think sometimes we can capture even the most reluctant readers and writers by just saying, hey, there's this form that's not so concerned with correctness. It's not so academic. It can be, I mean, it can be as academic as you want it to be. I mean, there are mm-hmm. some extremely complex forms of poetry and, and, and pieces of poetry that have been written that are, that, are, that still have people analyzing them to this day. But Poetry is also very simple at times, and it can be very freeing. So from the reading perspective, to kind of tie that in for you, when you go into the showing your students poems, do you have like a like anything that you're that you're particularly looking for to open? them into that? Do you, do you worry about like showing them more complex poetry or looking at forms? Are you just looking for something to stimulate their ideas? I'm curious at where, how you kind of think about from the the beginning stages. Well, I typically begin with words. You know me, I love words. And so I try to get them to start looking for words. That is a very Ochoa thing. (laughs) We're going to start with the words. We start with the words. (laughs) Well, I mean, First of all, some of the kids, they have trouble with that. So I let them go find words, like they listen for words. And, you know, we talk about how poets put words together and we just kind of look at the different meanings of words. So I kind of just have them play around with words, you know, maybe for a day. And then I also share poetry with them, um, all different kinds of poetry. Uh, what we've already started is we I took them to the library And I let our librarian talk to them about anthologies and poetry anthologies and how a lot of times people will put their poems together in a a thematic way. And so I want my students to start thinking about theme and things that they really, truly would like to, um, that they feel strong about. And then maybe from there, that can stem some ideas for some poems. And then maybe they can put together their own collection of poetry. So I'm hoping at the end of this that we have a collection of poems uh, that the students have put together. So I like to put them in the role of editor and writer. So they find one, write one. So I let them find all of them. So I might introduce, um, you know, some simple poetry. I try to do some things that they haven't done. But some of my lessons that I do are actually from uh, Nancy Gatwell's um, some of her work, you know, I, I say her work a lot, but I do use her stuff uh, Her from her uh, lessons that change writers. She does a lot of uh, where did poetry, where does poetry hide? Uh, and that's how she gets them to brainstorm and say they go, their homework is to actually go and look in their room and look around and try to find just places where poetry hides. And she kind of models that. So I try to model that for them and then uh, maybe write a few poems and show them that. Uh, poetry can happen on the, you know, anywhere and it be about anything and then let them brainstorm and share and play. And then I start showing them different forms and different things. And if they want to explore that more, then that can turn into a conference if they want to explore that. 
So I like to show them a, a, a plethora of ideas and then let them experiment. I love it. I, I think that is that's kind of where you, that's kind of how we start. And I think this, uh, ironically enough, we didn't plan this, but I think this rolls right into <laughs> how we approach the getting their reading lives going. Right? It's mm-hmm. the idea of. You get them hooked first. And I, I feel like, you know, I've been following a lot of quote unquote classical educators on Twitter recently, um, partly because I find them interesting. And I feel like some of that, there a lot of, well, a lot of their ideas are outside of what I consider uh, practices that are uh, not effective is the wrong word. I'm, I'm sure they're, they're being effective in their classrooms. What I consider kind of moving in the new direction of education, which is obviously they're, they're the, the classical part of that term of the way they teach um, lends itself away from some of the newness. But, you know, a lot of them are so focused on teaching specific novels, teaching specific things. Like they, they'll come straight out and say, it's not my job to make sure that, you know, you're entertained and it's, you know, it's, it's my job to get you to, to understand the canon because the canon is what's the, the knowledge that you need for, um, uh, you know, moving into college courses and et cetera, et cetera. And that's interesting to me. Um, because I have been, I, I have seen so much success with, you know, quote unquote, the Donna Lynn Miller approach, um, of just getting book love to happen, getting students into reading in the first place. And I think uh, it, my gut instinct tells me, depending on the school that you are at, depend, it affects your view on what we're talking about on this podcast. Because mm. I have worked at this one campus for seven years. I was gone for one year, but for seven years I've been at this campus and we traditionally inherit students who do not have reading lives. They don't have books in the home. Um, right. Most of them speak uh, multiple languages. English oh. is usually the second mm-hmm. language. Um, and a lot of them aren't that their, their literacy level in their home language isn't even at a level that we would consider on grade level, so to speak. And so that, that gives us interesting challenges to where we have a curriculum and we have standards that we have to hit and we have tests that we have to give. But as we've seen, um, handing kids, we've never had success with saying you need to read this specific thing. What we've had success with is having these huge classroom libraries and, talking with kids, conferring with kids and giving them books that make them want to read. And it might start with graphic novels. I had a student who, uh, he, he came to my classroom, you know, he was the, the classic, I hate reading. I'm never going to read. You're never going to make me a reader chest. It's never going to happen. You're not going to, you're not going to do it. And I was like, okay, cool. What, you know, what's funny is I taught his brother the year before and his brother was a reader. So it was, it was interesting dichotomy, but he came in, he was like, I don't want to do this. And I gave him some graphic novels and he was like, these are fine, but I could tell like he wasn't even reading them. He was just kind of looking at the pictures and moving on. I eventually gave him new, uh, not new kids. Sorry. I gave him, Hey kid which is a more advanced graphic novel in terms of ideas, but it's about a kid who lives with his family is their, uh, their drug addicts. Um, so it's about a kid's like experience through that. It's a fantastic graphic novel for anyone who uh, needs something that is a little bit more 
high level, but still in the graphic novel space. But he read that and I got him. He was like, this is actually pretty good. And I was like, okay, all right, we're moving in the right direction. After I got him to know who he was, ironically enough, I gave him a classic in the middle school world. I gave him The Outsiders next after he finally read that. And he's been hooked on it. And he's, he's he hasn't finished yet. He's going through it slower. Um, and But we've been talking about it and just conferring through it and whatnot. But he is now reading a novel in November that just a few months ago in August, he would have never even believed that he would have a book like that in his hands. And here's the thing. How did I, how did this happen? Did I assign reading logs? No. Did I assign constant reflections on their books? No. We have done things like that. Have I over 50% of the time just let them read during this reading time while I kind of walk around and talk? Yes. And the, the, the crux of this podcast today is asking why do people look down at that in schools, Miss Ochoa? Why is reading time where students can read with no strings attached, why is this looked down upon? Why do people feel like that is a less than practice? Is it is it because of the systems that we have to serve? Is it because it is useless? Is it because of a misunderstanding of what's happening in that time? What is it? Let's crack open this. What are your initial thoughts on this conundrum of when someone goes, oh, kids are just reading? Well, I've seen that and heard that and had to defend that on more than one occasion. If you remember, there was when y'all were in my um, my reading training, uh, we had another set of teachers from another school, and they were quite concerned. Like they would meet with me, you know, after after the course, almost every day, uh, asking me to help them frame their argument because their principal was like. We're not, you cannot be doing SSR or DEAR because if you do that, then they're not really working and they're not really reading. And so uh, I had a chance to talk to that principal. And one of the things she said that her biggest concern was is it that this, there's no accountability that how do you really know the students are reading? And so she's like, if I can't see them, see their thinking, and then I can't really know if you're if you're helping them. So uh, that was her biggest issue was you can't really see their reading. But this is where you have to trust you have to trust the student at some point, and you have to put a book like the other day in front of them that they might read. The other day I had a student, and you could tell they were just staring at it and they weren't really reading. And I and I went over to him and I said. Um, so what is the problem with this book that you don't really want to read it? And she's like, it was actually he, he's like, well, I don't like it. And I said, okay, sometimes, sometimes that happens. He's like in the middle of the book. And I don't really think he was in the middle of the book. I think he was really just trying to keep me off his back, but I watched him. The thing is, as you can tell, I, t- I tell him I've been doing this for 35 years. I know when a student's reading or when they're not most of the time. And so I said, you're not reading. And he goes, well, I, I don't really like it. I said, well, I'd rather you spend this time going to the classroom library. Thank goodness I had a classroom library, but I said, go into the classroom library. If you need me to help you, I will, but go and find a book that you think you will read because there's no reason to sit here for 10, 15, 20 minutes and 
pretend because it's not helping you. And so the person got up, the student got up and they went and uh, found a book and they, and they actually picked up a Jason Reynolds book. I said, have you read one of his books? And they went, well, no, not really. And I said, well, why don't you try it? I think he's a good writer. And so they go over the next thing I know, when I said, okay, let's do something else, it was like he he went, ah, because I think he got into the book. He picked one that he had gotten into. So he, he didn't want to quit reading once he started. So I think um, I think their fear is not necessary. These principles that are any other person that walks in and says, oh, they're just reading. Um, it's more than that. I don't think they understand the what it takes to actually read and one more thing, I had another principle because I asked him, why do you feel like that? And this was a few years back. And he was like, well, I think sometimes it, reading was easy for me. So I don't remember it being a struggle. So how, are, how can they be learning if it's not a struggle? And I said, well, just because it was easy for you doesn't mean it's easy for all of these students. So for them to sit there and read a book long term, you know, for a period of time, for a sustained period of time is difficult for many of them. So, and another thing, why would, and I told them, why would you, I mean, do you go into the math room and say, oh my goodness, they're doing math problems. We got to stop because math is easy for you too. Well, no, not really. I said, okay, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. That's always, it's, it's the, you know, and it, I can't help but think that a lot of our perceptions of what school should be is so distorted by action, right? We see it in writing. If if students aren't moving their pencils, they're not writing. And I've always called questions to that. And it's like, well, you know, I think about all the times I write. I sit and I think and I get distracted and I listen to music and I do all of these things in the process of writing. Now, sometimes I do churn out words all the time, but I'm also a 30 year old person who's been writing his whole life, right? Like I've written several books at this point and I I have a process that I work through. But when you're a kid to, to limit something like writing to physical movement, I feel like we're doing a disservice to all of the, the non-physical things of writing that happen. And I think this is the same thing in reading where we forget that there, and there's, there's different types of reading that go down, uh, mm-hmm. in any type of life, reading a test and reading test questions is different than reading a book for pleasure. And a lot of, I feel like a lot of us feel like that, that pleasure piece isn't, shouldn't be at the forefront of a classroom because we have quote unquote real learning to do and we have things that we have to accomplish. And, you know, I had a really great uh, literacy coach who said, you know, if, if you don't have time to have kids read in your classroom, then you're, you're using your time unwisely. And she was like, I don't care if you have a 45 minute block or an 80 minute block or all day. If, if kids aren't reading to, to get into the reading zone, as Nancy Atwell calls it, then they're never going to experience what deep reading is. They're only going to read surface. You know, this is why the, the research on, and we should probably do an episode on this. It would take some research on our end to actually like cite some stuff, but 
the research all about why rigid reading on digital devices is it's not bad. It's just different, right? You read differently mm-hmm. on screens and you don't read as deeply. And there's, there's a lot of nuance to uh, the, the cognitive processes that don't get activated when you're reading on screens. And we have this big push for digitizing everything, going one-to-one, moving away from paper, moving away from having kids independently read and read novels and everything like this. And I just, there's so much missing. And then we wonder why kids are struggling with focus. We wonder why they don't like reading anyway. And if they don't ever have any pleasure in reading, why would they ever practice enough doing it to get good at it? The way you get to the level to where you can comprehend something and understand the lulls of a novel and understand story and understand craft and everything else is by going through the process and you can't, there's, there's no way around that, right? Like there's no way around experiencing a novel than to experience the novel. Like there's, it's like asking someone to work out, but skip past the reps. Like you're and all of a sudden you're going to be fit, right? You're going to have, it's like you, you'll have the muscles just skip past all of the exercise portion. And we don't, and we can't do that. The, that reading time is the exercise. It, it's teaching them the, the nuances of language It's teaching them how things lull and get exciting and all of that. And it's very, there's so many processes going down there and it's just to, to only have reading time that is purely focused on skills and uh, what should be accomplished is – I feel like it's a disservice. It's a disservice to what reading is. It's a disservice to books. It's a disservice to all of that. And I think as educators, we really have to uh, acknowledge that we must – at all times, uh, we ha- we have to be mindful of if we only let students read for academic purposes, for skills, for for doing something that is quote active uh, in, in terms of their reading, then we're we're missing out on stuff. If they have to constantly prove that they're reading on paper, there's things that happen in reading that aren't on paper, right? There's all kinds of connections that happen internally, and if we burden down the reading process too much, my greatest fear is that we're going to turn away kids that would be readers into, well, I don't like that because every time I've had to read for the last 18 years of my life, I've had to jot down every single thought I had. I had to make connections where I didn't see connections. I had to, I had to perform school to read. And I just feel like we lose so many readers by constantly putting that pressure on. And I feel like the easy solution to that is just let kids read. It doesn't have to be all the time. I'm not even advocating for that, right? Because I do it every day, right? But there are times where I do that. But I think we I, we need to open it up. I feel like that is the solution. But I don't know. I, I've been talking for a minute. I mean, this is obviously a soapbox for me. But do you in, – in your experience, though, when, when, when we – it's almost like we want to chain down – reading with stuff, but let, let's be fair though. Let's be fair to the argument when, cause I feel like you're very good at balancing the, the ludic reading, so to speak, as, uh, Abydos talks about, but the, that, that, you know, dear time, the SSR time, whatever people want to call it, you're really good at balancing that freedom and exploration and just joy with having authentic ways for 
kids to do that. So how do you balance that? How do you balance the skills that you must help students develop to become uh good readers and, and proficient readers, but without just chaining it down to where you're essentially doing what Billy Collins says about poetry, where you just chain it down, beat it, tie it to a chair and try to get a confession out of it. How do you balance those two things? Well, variety, I think is one way we do that. Uh, I do have the students read like when they walk in for the most part this year, they've been reading, but like the other day we, I needed to do more writing so I told the kids the day before tomorrow when we walk in we're not going to we're not going to start with reading we're going to start with writing. So I tell them so sometimes I do switch my schedule up but for the most part they come in and they read. Uh when they read sometimes I don't have anything after the reading for them to do. So uh but sometimes I'll have them do something. Uh if we depending on what we're focusing on. I think I said this the other day. We were focused on summary, so I had them summarize what they had read. Um, The other day, I had them retell to somebody else, and then the students had to write down what they heard about somebody else's book rather than their own book. Uh, Sometimes I might ask them uh, for a connection that they've made, and I just do different kinds of things, and they usually do that at the end of the reading. So they read, and I don't tell them what they're going to do. They read, and then they go back in sometimes and read over and look for certain things. Sometimes I don't have that part at all. Sometimes they just read, and we move on to the next thing. And other times, I might have a little lesson at the beginning and say, okay, today as you read, I want you to be looking for this. So I kind of vary that up, and it depends on what our standard is and what we're focusing on, and that's how I how I do that. But I typically do all of my model reading. I use uh, picture books and uh, or trade books, whatever you want to call it. And I do a lot of read alouds that way. I probably don't do as much as I used to, but my students will gravitate. I have the books on my shelf, my picture books, and I have a lot of them. And they will go and pick up those books. Sometimes I have to tell them, you can't read the picture books today. But usually when they, but they some of my kids that have trouble reading, like you were talking about, because I have kids that speak French. I have kids that speak Spanish. I have kids that speak language, you know, Nepalese and stuff like that. So I don't always have students that are strong in their own language. And so I find that my picture books allow them to experiment with shorter sentences, but yet pretty, I mean, those have some pretty complex ideas in them, the ones that I have on my shelf. And some are pretty simple. So I I think variety is the way I do that. And then uh, they respond, but not every day. I, you know, it's so funny that it is, I feel like so much of a teacher's life today in the modern classroom is just balancing what we have to do with what we should do. (laughs) Like, right. You know what I mean? Like we, we face this a little bit in our lives recently, but it's also just like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I, my, I have so many students who are reading right now there. We just had this day Friday where we did something different, but I had them, we read to start the day, which is usually we do our mini lesson. We didn't have a mini lesson then, but they, so many of them were in their books, you know, there was not a peep. Every student had mm-hmm. their thing that they were doing. And there is a magic 
to that. And, you know, I had recently seen uh, who someone I consider a friend over there on Twitter. He was talking about, oh, my God, like I could I could only imagine every kid reading a different book like this would like be stressful for him. And I was mm-hmm. like, man, that's so fun for me because, you know, I walk around and I'm usually reading with them and a lot of the times I talk about my book that I'm reading and just sharing that reading life with them. But not nine times out of 10, you know, I'm going up to them and I'm going, Hey, how's this going? Oh, I see you're still reading that. That's awesome. How far are you? What's happening now? And mm-hmm. just having those conversations and, and teaching students that I'm not really trying to get them. I feel like I spend most of my time in the early part of the year convincing students that I'm not trying to trap them, that, for the love of God, don't look at a book that you hate, right? Like, <laughs> right. I mean, that's why like, I told that student, why do you, why are you spending this, this minute, these minutes wasting your time? Yeah. And you're, it's also the, you know, you're, we read for you know, like roughly 25 to 30 minutes a day, right? And maybe 20 to 30, but it's, uh, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time to be miserable. And that's what I tell them. I'm like, we're doing it every day. I'm like, there's, <laughs> there's, and I'm not, you know, there's really no like punishment coming for you either way. I was like, you know, I do take a grade on your participation through this or whatever. And I do that. And, and we'll do that. But that's so easy. Like, this is, this should be the time of day where you're excited to be in because I'm not telling you what to do specifically. I'm telling you this is reading time. You know, it can be a magazine, a graphic novel, whatever you need. And, now that like they've kind of trusted that process, a lot of them really are diving into it. I just and here's the thing: their their writing's getting better. The way they speak is getting better. the 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 calmness of the class is finally calming down. Like you know, that a lot mm-hmm. of them have spent two years, roughly, not reading at all, just reading whatever their teacher put on Canvas for their you know online. Uh, you know, distance learning or whatever, and they did weren't reading at home, and so it's taken probably a little bit more long than uh, what it usually would have because for because of that for a lot of them. And here's the thing: it, it just does so much for the classroom culture that I just I couldn't imagine just trying to tie everything down to uh, to the to nothing but strategy focuses and, you know, forcing students to quote unquote, show me that they're reading. You know how they show me that they're reading is that by talking about their reading, like I remember Mm -hmm. when I first started doing independent reading, my biggest question was how do I know students are actually reading? How do they know? How do how will I know that they're not just faking? So I'm going to ask you that. How do you know, Ochoa, when kids are independently reading whatever book they want, how do you know that they're actually reading? Well, I mean, you look at them and, and they're, first of all, they're engaged. They're not looking up. They're not looking around to see what their friends are doing. Uh, they're turning the page and then they might turn back and then they might turn it again. So you can tell that they are like, when they not quite understanding something, they'll, they'll, they will go back and forth on that page. Uh, reread. They do things like that. Uh, they're actually, like I said, turning the page, they're into it. They move at a at a pace that's normal. Um, and what I mean by normal is they're not just like flipping, 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 or they're not like, I had this one student, he was trying to get away from reading and he was just pretending. And I go, I look at him, I said, uh, so what page are you on? And he goes, I'm on 34. 
and I had been watching him and he had just gotten that book and I knew that he had not because I kind of keep a little note of what they've been reading. And so anyway, I said, well, it seems to me you should be on page four. (laughs) And he goes, how do you know? (laughs) I said, because I've been watching you. So go back to page four where you actually quit reading and try to convince me you were reading and go back to it. And he's like, all right. Or if you don't like the book, get a new book. So I think we spent the first, I guess, four weeks where kids were like abandoning books left and right because they just would go pick one off the shelf. But then when they realized that we were going to be reading for more than 10 minutes, that's another thing that I've noticed is if I don't stop them at 10 minutes, they start at the beginning. They're like, uh, 10 minutes is up, Mr. Choa. And I'm like, I never said we were doing it for 10 minutes. We around 10 minutes, but I mean, I didn't even give them a time. They were just like 10 minutes, Mr. Choa. It's 10 minutes. And I'm like, I don't even have a clock up. So I'm like, so you're not reading because you've been watching that clock. (laughs) So he's like, ah, you know, or I'll look around and they'll go, what? And I said, well, you wouldn't be asking me that question if you were reading because you would not be looking at me. I'm looking around the room. So I do have some students that like to resist, but they're getting less and less. And they are, the class gets quiet. And then they don't notice when we pass that 10 minutes and then they're still quiet. And then, well, when I get that moment, when they get past that 10 minute mark and they're not, because I think they've been timed all this time. I think, I think everybody thinks a workshop is 10 minutes reading and that's it. Or at least I think there's been their experience. I don't know for sure, but it seems like that because they're geared to stop at 10 minutes and they go at the beginning, they were mad at me because I was making it go now we got five more minutes. Now we got five more minutes, you know. But um, but now, for the most part, they'll go into the 15, 20 minutes. The other day, somebody goes, Ms. Ochoa, are we not going to get to the lesson? It's 40 minutes. <laughs> We've been reading for 40 minutes. But it was like, it was magic. It was all quiet. I wasn't not going to interrupt that moment. I just wasn't. And so when they said it was 40 minutes and everybody started talking, so I did the lesson. <laughs> so that's. So it gets quiet. It is magical. It is magical when they start start reading. You know what's so funny is I, I had a bunch of connections to that. But what I was thinking of that I'm dealing with right now is mm-hmm. I'm having students that they're they're pretty comfortable with the time. One, I used to do the timer all the time. I would put like 15 minutes up, especially when I first started independent reading. I would always have my timer. We were very Kagan-oriented on my campus at the time. And I would have that up and I would notice that students would stop a little early, you know, because Mm -hmm. the timer was up and stuff. And eventually I moved away from that. And now I have a flexible time. And, you know, sometimes depending on the lesson, sometimes we go really long. Sometimes we go shorter. But it's usually, like I said, 20 to 30 minutes. 30 minutes is a long day. But usually we're hitting 20 minutes um, a day. And they're they're doing fine like they a lot of them couldn't do that at the beginning and so their stamina is going up they're enjoying reading more but one thing that i'm struggling with which is kind of funny it's it's a good problem but it's a problem nonetheless is i have students going all right chastain i read for 5 minutes can i please write i just i have to write i have oh, i have these I'm not pieces. having that problem <laughs> I, have I it usually so have that many. problem. That's usually my problem. That's what's different for me at, at where, because, you know, this is my first year at this school. So, yeah, I don't know if that's their culture. I don't know. I don't know anybody. So I don't really know. 
what they've been doing. So it's been kind of interesting. But no, I don't have that problem, Chastain. I'm sorry, but it, you know it's so it's so funny because I I want them to, but at the same time, even I do have that I have that a lot with several of them, especially in my uh, honestly in my more struggling classes because I just I don't know they just start to love writing because it really does give them a positive feedback loop. I think the way I have it set up, mm-hmm. but I, I I do have students in when we go to writing like all right, I wrote. I wrote this section. Can I please go back to my book? Like I, I have that too. And that's, that's like usually that's what I have. Th- those, well, those signs, I think either way are a positive right. in, in one way or another, because that means that, I mean, they're engaging in the content. It's like they, if they want to write, that's awesome. They, they need to write. They need to practice. If they want to read. That's awesome. They need to do it. They need to practice. And I feel like at the heart of this stuff. When we talk about kids just writing, quote unquote, just reading, it's I think why we are so immune to stuff like that and those comments, so to speak, or those criticisms of this style of teaching is we understand that the, n- you're never just reading, right? You're never just writing. Right. You're creating all kinds of synapses, connections in your brain, and you are, you're forming new ideas and you're creating nuance and you're creating knowledge. You're literally building knowledge when you read and despite what you're reading and you're building all kinds of vocabulary vocabulary and ability to understand structure, whether that's story or grammar or anything else. And I think that is the power of this. And, you know, part of it would be wrong of us not to as like, you know, we close out this conversation to point out that part of the reason of craft and draft, we've said this a lot, is to to bring out the internal Right, the whole point mm-hmm. of the craft book and the draft book is to bring that out in an authentic way. That isn't a workshop, or not workshop. That isn't a <laughs> a worksheet. That right. isn't uh, you know something that's very stock that mm-hmm. just can be reproducible and it really has no meaning. And so we we knew that was a problem because we want to externalize that, but at the same time. We're not slaves to these journals, right? Like we, the if the journals become just another worksheet, so to speak, if the journals become a program, uh, they, they, they lose their effectiveness. Um, I don't know. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I I do. And, and that's the thing is not one year to the next is that, does that system or journal look the same for me? Uh, but also the students, each one of theirs looks different based on the way they've chosen to take their notes or what they've chosen to keep. And some pages look exactly the same across the board. So, uh, but it's, it's also dependent on what their, their own choices of what they're reading and what they're writing determines what they put in there. So it's very um, personalized in, in my class. I'm sure it is in yours too. I mean, there are things like the mini lesson that we do and all of that, but then that's about it. That's about the only thing that's exactly or might have the same exact things in it. And then after that, it it moves uh, with what the students need to do and what they need to know. So each one looks a little bit different, but yet they're similar. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. Final advice for anyone who might be uh, facing that criticism from an admin, 
from team members, from anyone else, from the internet, right? Like there's there's people that listen to this podcast who they really don't have like, a lot of teams, ironically enough. Like I'm always shocked mm-hmm. at how many teachers are kind of islands where they are. So well, maybe I, they're I was an island for years, so I understand. Yeah, and and like especially like rural schools and mm-hmm. districts and stuff. Like we have a lot of those listeners, and um, well, well, some of them that might be the only teacher for that entire school. Exactly. So mm-hmm. for and they might be on Twitter and following teachers, and the teachers are like, "Oh no, that you know you got to do more than that. This is this is not a practice. You know, it might sound good, but." Give your kids the traditional stuff. It works. You know, for someone that might be facing doubt in some of this because of criticism and whatever form they're having, what would that be? What would your be advice for someone who they have faced the comments of, oh, your kids are just reading or isn't that just reading? Anything phrases like that. How do you, how, what do you suggest people think about or tools that they could have to, to grapple uh, with that criticism? Well, I mean, I would, I would look up some research that would back this idea of silent sustained reading i would you mentioned the synapses and how it changes the brain of course they they have actually mapped uh, the brain or actually taken pictures of people when they're reading and the brain lights up when they're reading and the brain lights up when they're writing more than probably any other thing or they're creating art those things the brain lights up quite a bit and so i would look up those things uh the other thing that i would do is I would have a variety, uh, like I like I suggested earlier, and I would have a series of things that the kids could do from that writing. Whether it's, I always have them talk and share about their books. That's one thing that they do, and that's why I have that little writing at the end where they respond to their piece, and then, um, and so then the students would share what they had written or share their about their books. And there's nothing. Uh, I think better than to walk around your room and you hear the students literally talking about the books and they're like, Hey, or here's another thing that's happened is some of my students have created their own little groups. Like, Hey, let's all, let's all uh, pick, go to the library or wherever. And let's all pick like little love stories. And so I've got like, I I got this little group of doing love stories. And I got another group that's doing some graphic novels that they've done. I've got another group. So they've almost kind of created their own little groups in some of my classes. So it's kind of, kind of neat to, to watch them uh, do that. But I think as far as advice goes, I would try to get a variety of books. Book access is number one. Um, Number two, maybe have moments where they respond, but don't make that every day. You know, but put it in there enough that it's it's almost a pattern. And then I would almost do a little action research. What do you, you know, a pre-test at the beginning, just a generalized reading test, have them read, and then check them at the end of that reading at, at a particular time and see if that's, see if they're growing in some way. And maybe even survey the students. That might be another way to do it. But maybe get some uh, data there that might prove to whoever's given uh, the grief, so to speak. Um, give them some feedback as to why what they're doing is helping. Do you have anything? Uh, you know, I was gonna, add, I was gonna be like, and my two senses, but you did it so perfectly. So I'm not. I'm just gonna let you have okay. the floor, master teacher. That was oh, uh, beautiful. Everyone needs to listen to a show I do every single day. But this has been crafted. Draft. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
That is Pamela Joe. I'm Jacob Chastain. We're two. It's a lovely little teacher. Texas writing teacher, writing workshop, and reading workshop teachers down here. Uh, Craft and Draft is our journal system. If you want to check that out, you can go check out. There's a tab on our website, craftanddraftworkshop.com, where you can click on the Craft and Draft process. We have a couple episodes where we lined it out. Um, we have some more videos coming up that we're planning on making to to help you guys with the system as we uh, make make progress on the book and everything else. Um, hopefully, we'll have some trainings coming up and everything else. We're currently we're just trying to fit in everything with our schedule. For being completely honest, I know everyone feels like this year is crazy. We are no different. Um, and every like I don't we didn't even plan to podcast today until about thirty minutes before we jumped on the podcast. So we're literally just flying by the seat of our pants in every aspect of life. So. Have patience with us in terms of giving you guys something uh, tangible, but hopefully this podcast serves as a nice medium between that. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe so you don't miss the episode. We drop an episode every single Friday. Uh, leave a rating and review if you enjoy this. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, know that we are here for you. <laughs> <laughs>